you have your Bibles with you today, please turn with me to the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 122 this morning. The book of Psalms, we'll be, we'll be looking at the entire Psalm of Psalm 122 this morning. And the title of my sermon this morning, church, is Praying for Peace. Praying for Peace. Psalm 122. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I will be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Praying for Peace, Psalm 122. This is the word of the Lord, church, this morning, starting in Psalm 122. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. God, it is a grace, it is a gift to be able to gather in your name, Father. Not only has this been something that the church has been doing for 2,000 years, but Lord, we remember what you have done 2,000 years ago, King Jesus, that you came into the world as a man, you lived a perfect life, and you would ultimately die on the cross for the sake of your people, Lord, so that all who would believe in you would have everlasting life. And the faith that we now confess in you, the fact that we are here now, we confess that same faith that you are Lord, that you are God, and that because you rose again from the grave three days later from your death, we now remember through song, through the preaching of your word, through singing, and even through the Lord's Supper later this morning, that God, we remember what you have done on the cross, and we just thank you for that, King Jesus. Lord, I pray first and foremost for, for the flock today. I pray that you just give them ears to hear, Lord Father, God, that they will just be able to understand your word, empower them by your spirit, help them to be exposit, exposit, expository listeners, Lord, that God, they will not only be hearers of the word who forget, but doers who act to be more like King Jesus out of their love for you, ultimately loving their neighbor as themselves. And so, Lord, I just pray that for my flock and any unbeliever here, Lord, we pray for their salvation. We're glad that they're here and that God, although they may not understand why they're here or they may not understand why they should be here, but Lord, you are the one who declares truth for you are truth. I pray that the gospel will be preached so that, Lord, they may come to a saving knowledge of you, King Jesus, and not live for self, not live for the world, but live for the one that they are made to live for, and that is you, the creator God of the Bible. We pray for them as well. And just lastly, Lord, I pray for myself, Lord. I am a broken servant. I am, a, I am merely a vessel, Lord. I am a sinner. God, I am unworthy to preach your word, but Lord, you are worthy to be declared this morning. And I just pray that please empower me by your spirit to not mess up your word at all. Guide my thoughts, guide my words, please, so that, Lord, it is your word going to your people. Your flock is fed, and that, Lord, ultimately, we walk. the church walks away from these doors, loving you more because they know you more, and that, Lord, they ultimately live in light of what you call us to do, to make disciples of all the nations, all to your glory alone. God, thank you for the grace of gathering in your name, and we just lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see the church. The biggest threat to world peace is that humanity has forgotten God. 
And the reason humanity has forgotten God is that they do whatever seems right in their own eyes. For example, in 1983, the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he received the Templeton Prize for religion based on his writings, right? And so in his writings, Solzhenitsyn set out to research why all the atrocities came to pass in Soviet Russia, leading to the death of about 6 million people. As a result, here's his conclusion. His conclusion is based upon what he used to hear from his elders growing up in Soviet Russia. He says, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And when we think about that statement, the same holds true for our culture, loved ones. Identity and truth are married together by the freedom to be true to yourself. We see biological men and women going against nature to choose whoever they want to marry, whatever gender they want to be. Even the family household, a gift from God, the center of society, even that itself is unraveling, loved ones. We have women encouraged to deny the gift of womanhood by autonomously killing their own babies. Even men are discouraged to, to, or, or sorry, discouraged to embrace biblical masculinity. That is their responsibility to lovingly lead their wives and to raise up children in the fear of the Lord. We look in the streets, crime is on the rise. We look at many homes and we see depression is on the rise. And our culture looks at all of this and says, you know what the solution is? The solution to such peace and happiness and joy? Everyone must learn just to really tolerate each other so that everyone can just keep doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. And yet our culture fails ever since the beginning of humanity, but our culture has failed as well that all of this has happened because we have forgotten God. However, the good news is, is that our text this morning, it's going to tell us that there is only one way. There's only one way to find such peace and such chaos. There is only one type of peace that will come to restore this broken world. There's only one way that you individually can find peace so that you can live the life that you wish you had, to live the life that you were created to live. And such peace, loved ones, such peace is only possible when you believe and live for the one who is peace, the Prince of Peace, King Jesus, King Yeshua, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so, my brothers and sisters, and everyone here this morning, here's the main point of Psalm 122. We are to pray for Christ's return, for he will bring peace. We are to pray for Christ's return, for he alone will bring peace. But why? Why should we pray that prayer? Well, because the peace that Jesus will bring fulfills three types of hopes. First is going to be the hope of true worship. Christ's peace brings true worship. Second, Christ's peace brings a unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. And finally, Christ's peace brings perfect justice. Perfect justice. But before I dive into the text this morning with you, loved ones, I need to briefly mention something really quick about our psalm, our text this morning. I need to talk about how it is structured because that's going to serve us and how we need to rightly interpret our psalm this morning. So it's not just John Weigel giving his own interpretation, but we're seeing what is the author trying to tell us himself. The overall structure of Psalm 122 is what some people call a chiasm. A chiasm. And if you've never heard of that word before, it is a weird word. A chiasm, it comes from the Greek letter key, which it looks like the letter X in our English, in our English language. And really the purpose of a chiasm is to simply build up towards a main point 
building up towards the main point in the psalm. And that kind of helped clarify that, loved ones. Think of a staircase, for example. A staircase, you climb up a staircase, and it builds upon one step over another, over another, over another. That's kind of how the structure of a chiasm is. And so if you look in your Bibles at Psalm 122, we're going to see that the first steps of this chiasm is verses 1 to 2 and verses 8 to 9. Yes, they're on the opposite ends of the psalm, but yet these are the first steps. They're parallel to one another, but they serve as the first steps of her psalm. And then the next steps are going to be verses 3 to 4 and verses 6 to 7. The second part of the psalm, but again, they parallel each other. And what these steps are doing is that they're building on one point over another until it gets to the center of the psalm, the point of the psalm, verse 5, which is really the key of the chiasm. And so as we go through these first these first two points, loved ones, remember that each and every point is building up towards the center of the chiasm in verse 5, which is going to be the third and primary point of the psalm. And so with that in mind, brothers and sisters, that's all I have to say about that, let's turn to the first hope. Let's turn to the first hope of why you ought to pray for the peace of Christ's return. And it's this again, loved ones, the hope of true worship. The hope of true worship. Look at your Bibles, loved ones, in Psalm 122, starting in verses 1 to 2. The psalmist writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And so if you've been here for the past couple of Sunday mornings, I've been going through the Psalm of Ascents, and we've been journeying through the Psalm of Ascents, which is just one section in the book of Psalms. And if you recall, these are a collection of Psalms that Jews would sing during the pilgrimage during their pilgrimages to Jerusalem for various festivals throughout the year. And not only that, but, this, but these psalms, these songs, they served as a reminder, not only for the Jewish people, but for all God's people in times and places. These psalms serve as a reminder to God's people to not live for this present evil age. This present evil age, this world that we live in, it's fading away. It's fallen. It's not going to permanently last. So don't live for it. Instead, live for the age to come, long for your eternal home when God returns to make all things new in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And so up to this point, we, I've been going through Psalm 120, Psalm 121, and now we're in Psalm 122. And how Psalm 120 begins this section in the Song of the Saints, it's crying to God for help. God, help me. Lord, I live in this present evil age. I live amongst people who hate you, who are not for peace. I need help. And we see an answer to that prayer, that cry for help in Psalm 121, right, last time. And the response is that the creator God, the God of the Bible, the triune God, he comes to protect his people and he comes to keep them to the very end. And as a result, this is where we find ourselves in Psalm 122. Psalm 122 is not only a celebration, but it's a celebration of joy. Joy because God has now kept his people in their journey to the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And not only that, but in this early part of the psalm, we also see that there's an extra detail in Psalm 122. It says it's not just a song of ascents. Look at the beginning of the psalm. It says it's also a song of David. In other words, King David, the second king of Israel, perhaps the greatest king of Israel's history, he is the man who wrote it, which makes sense because the majority of the psalms are written by King David. He was a musical man, a man of God's own heart. He is the one who wrote this psalm. And although it doesn't, he doesn't tell us why he wrote this psalm, at least the personal circumstance, because a lot of David's psalms um, stem from personal um, trials in his life, 
He doesn't mention that here. But what we can know, at least for sure, is that he wrote this psalm for his people to sing as they made their yearly pilgrimages to the city of David, or also known as Jerusalem. As a result, look again at Psalm 122, verse 1, as King David begins to expound this psalm for us. The psalmist writes that I was glad. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's go together to the house of God. And so we see here at the beginning of the psalm, it begins by expressing really his heartfelt joy, the joy and happiness. But that begs a question, right? Why is the psalmist so joyful? Why is he so happy? Well, look at the, psalm, look at the text again in verse 1. Because people were saying to him, hey, buddy, let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's go to God's house. Now, before we can understand the significance of the psalmist's joy, we need to understand what does he mean by the house of the Lord? Because it can be kind of ambiguous, right? What does he mean by the house of the Lord, the house of God? Thankfully, he clarifies it in the very next verse. And so look at verse 2, loved ones. He says, our feet, that is himself and his companions, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And so we see here that the house of the Lord, it's not just merely the temple that was in Jerusalem where God's presence dwelt and Israel was supposed to go and worship God, the creator God. Yet, he is referring to the entire city of Jerusalem. And if that's a little unclear, look at the word gates. The word gates, that is referring to the entrance to the city of Jerusalem itself. It was surrounded by walls, various different buildings. You got the king's palace, and later, later in Israel's history, you got the Solomonic temple, the temple made by King Solomon that was meant to worship God. The, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, and, and although we as the church are to go and share the gospel, back in Old Testament times, they were able to come and see religion. Come and see our God. Come and see our mighty city. Come and see the God that we worship as Lord, because he is Lord. And so we see here then that the psalmist is really explaining the joy of his journey coming to an end on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He is just glad that I made it to Jerusalem. Because again, wherever he lived, if he lived outside of Jerusalem or you know, outside of Israel, his journey would have been hard. Physically, it would have been tiring. And geographically, remember, Jerusalem is the highest peak in Israel. And so physically, it would have been troubling. And not only that, but maybe spiritual trials. We don't know. Regardless, the psalmist is just glad that he is in Jerusalem. But then again, that begs the same question I asked earlier. Why is he so happy? Why is the psalmist so joyful that in, that in any other place in the world, he is glad that he's in Jerusalem? We're going to find the key reason later in verse 5. In the meantime, however, there is an immediate reason that we, that, we can, that we do pick up here. The psalmist is happy to be in Jerusalem because that is where God is. The psalmist is so joyful, so exhilarated that he is in the city of Jerusalem because that is where God is. And if you recall, in the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, the city of Jerusalem it just wasn't the center of it wasn't just the political center for Israel because when King David chose the city to rule the nation of Israel, he chose it one geographically because it was in the middle of Israel. So it would have been really good to rule all the twelve tribes politically. But not only that, but he also chose it as well because not only is this going to be the center of of, of Israel's rulership politically. This was the perfect place to be the center of how God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, would come and worship God. And they would come to the city of Jerusalem to do just that. 
You think about the priesthood. You think about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was eventually placed in Jerusalem. Although the Ark of the Lord was placed there temporarily in the tabernacle, it would eventually be transferred to the temple of the Lord permanently. And so we see here that this is the center of worship for Israel, in those times at least. That is why the psalmist is so happy. That is why the psalmist is so glad to be in the city of Jerusalem. Not because you got King David and, and his sons there. They're, they're cool guys. Some of them are not good guys. But nonetheless, it's a beautiful city. But nonetheless, he is glad because God is there. God is there, and I am here to worship him. And that leads us then to understanding a key aspect to this hope of true worship, an essential aspect of what does true worship look like? And if, and if you may follow me here, and some people will be off-put by this, every human being, whether you believe so or not, every human being, whether you are Christian, unchristian, atheist, believe in no God, believe in a thousand gods, every believer is fundamentally religious. Every human being is fundamentally religious. Why? Because we were all originally made to worship the one and true living God. As Exodus chapter 21 verse 1 says, the first commandment, God says to Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because there's only one God. That's the creator God of the Bible. And we were not made to live for anything else but the one that we're made to live for. And yet, if there's anyone here who disagrees with that statement, like, John, you're crazy. I'm not religious. If anything, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. But not only that, I'm not religious. I'm not really big into religion. If, if there's anyone thinking about that, or if you know anyone who, who thinks that way, then here's a question to ask that those people need to ask themselves. What do you value most in life? What do you value most in life? What do you spend most of your time doing? What do you give most of your time for? And once you get an answer to that, you, you begin to find your object of worship. That's the most time that you can dedicate to because that is what you most value in your life. However, there's a catch. If that one thing that you're thinking about, the one thing that you value most in your life, if it's not God, I'm sorry. You have just made an idol in your heart. Well, what is an idol? Well, to us Westerners, we tend to think of an idol as a, a little fake god that people bow down and they look kind of silly, right? That's part of the answer, but that's not the full picture of what an idol is. Instead, an idol fundamentally is anything that you worship that is not God. An idol is anything that rules your heart as Lord rather than the creator God who is Lord. An idol it's anything that you love and anything that you trust with all of your heart for your good rather than the one who is truth, good, and love. And if anyone here is still thinking, like, but John, I don't really think that's an American problem. Maybe for other cultures, maybe like in India or like in Southeast Asia, but that's not really a problem here, right? Think again. Think again, my friend, because idolatry or false worship, it's a universal pandemic. It affects every single human ever since our first First parents, Adam and Eve, first sin in the garden. Consider what the Apostle Paul says about this pandemic. He said, he, he, in Romans chapter 1, he's giving really the heart condition of all of humanity, that we are all fallen sinners, that we have fallen short of God's glory. This is what he says about humanity. He says, humanity has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. That's, that's Paul's summary of the condition of humanity. And so in some way, shape, or form, humanity is religious. And fundamentally then, humanity worships really everything in creation but the creator himself. 
And that's awful, right? Because we would rather worship the gift of creation rather than the gift, the giving creator himself, the one who gave the gift in the first place. Not only does that begin to demonstrate our sinfulness, really our wickedness in our human heart, but it really shows something even more troubling, that we do not want to worship God. We cannot worship God, at least on our own. Why? Because as Paul said earlier, humanity has given into the lie. The lie of what? Well, the lie that Satan first gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. The lie that you can come like God. And it's ironic, right? We were already made like God. Well, we were already made in God's image. But the lie of sin is that, hey, if you live for yourself, if you live as if you're your own God, you can be like God. You can be good and evil. And, you know, Adam and Eve, we know the story. They ate from the fruit, and now we're here to reap the consequences. Man, punks. But anyways, that's the condition of humanity. And as a result, we have all fallen short. We have all sinned against the creator God that we're meant to live for. And because of that, you might be like, oh, what's the big deal, John? What's the point? Well, the wages for your actions, for our actions, loved ones, for sending the one who made us in his image to worship him, the wages for humanity's cosmic treason, sinning against the creator, holy, good God, our treason against the holy, holy God is eternal death and hell. That's the consequence of sin. And yet, living for false idols, they don't even satisfy your deepest heart longs in this life. And it seems foolish, right? We live for a false god, doesn't meet our demands, and in the process, we're still going to go to hell because of it. Why do we still do it then? Because of sin. It blinds our perspective. It blinds our eyes. Even our, even our culture says that, hey, you can find happiness. You can find joy if you live according to your own heart. Be true to yourself. Live how you want to live. If you want to change your gender, so be it. If you want to have sex with that person, so be it. You know, if you want to live for that, you know, whether it's your work or education, so be it. Do whatever you want, right? Do as you please. As long as you're being a true, authentic self, then that's all what matters. But yet, is that even possible? We've got to ask yourself the question. That's what we hear, right? But is that even possible? Why do, and, and, and the reason why I even ask it, because if, if that's even possible, why do people seem then to never be able to attain it? They might find that temporarily, maybe temporal happiness and joy, but it never lasts. And even when people do pursue good things, like maybe like an education, maybe a good job, um, maybe a spouse, or even just a good family vacation, if we live for these things themselves, they, will, they never bring permanent joy. They never bring permanent happiness. They only lead us wanting more and more and more, leading down a downward spiral of brokenness. And again, the reason why this happens is because we worship everything in creation, but the creator God himself. Our desires were never meant to live for this world. Our desires were never created to worship this fallen world. Instead, we were created for God alone. We were created to worship him alone, loved ones. Consider what King David says earlier in the book of Psalms. He says in Psalm 1611, a beautiful passage. He says to God, you make known to me. Not the world, not anything in creation. You, God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we see here then is that if you want to live the good life, you can only find life in God because he is life. He has life in himself. If you want to find joy, you can only find it in God because he is good. He is the greatest good imaginable. And even if you want to find pleasure, you can only find that in God because he is love. He is aesthetically beautiful. 
And furthermore, God is the greatest being imaginable. The reason why all, all these things are true because he is the greatest being imaginable. He is the high creator God. And think about this with me. When we look at creation, when we look at everything around us, right, the, the mountains over here, the desert. I know some people don't really care about the desert, but I think it's beautiful. Just the sand, the Joshua trees, you know, pointing their branches up. All that stuff points to the glory of God. Again, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 19.1, For the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And yet, think about that. Although everything in creation, including you and me, loved ones, we glorify God based on our existence alone, and yet God is so great that all the glory that creation gives fills in comparison to fully comprehend how great is our God. And even your greatest thoughts about God, when you're having good theological conversations with your buddies at work, or just even just meditating upon God and his word, your greatest finite thoughts about God fail in comparison to really understand his infinite glory. And not only that, loved ones, but think about God and who he is in himself. Because God is these things, he continually showers humanity with his common grace, the gifts, the good and perfect gifts that we experience and enjoy and even take for granted, unfortunately, on a day-to-day basis. Think of your favorite food, good music, art, the sciences, friendships, families, the pets that you own, hobbies, everything in creation, all of that is good, and we can even call it good because it reflects the one who is good, and that is God who is goodness in himself. And of course, the greatest of these gifts, right, is the perfect work of Christ on the cross because he offers the free gift of salvation if you believe in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. As the Apostle John famously says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave what? His eternally begotten Son as a gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish in hell for the sinning against him, but rather have everlasting life. That's the goodness of the gospel. And that is a gift from a creator God. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. Yet by God's grace, he gives it to those whom he chooses to give it to. What an awesome God. What an awesome God indeed. It is only through faith in Christ alone that a person can have peace with God. It is only when someone has peace with God at that point that then you're able to truly worship him as Lord and Savior. As the North African theologian Augustine of Hippo confesses, and this is a beautiful quote kind of summarizing everything I've been saying, he says, God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So brothers and sisters, and anyone here, if you want to live the good life, If you want to be happy in life, you gotta rest in God. If you want to experience joyful contentment, you gotta rest in God. If you want to experience the the pleasure of true beauty and love, again, you gotta rest in God. If you want peace in this life, I know that's hard to come by, right? We live in a crazy time, a sinful world, rumors of war on the horizon with foreign countries, and yet it's been like that since the beginning because of sinful humanity. But yet, how do we seek such peace in such times? It's only possible when you rest in God. Because if you live for anything else, loved ones, if you live for anything else, you will find your hearts being restless. Why? Because, again, God alone is the one we were made to enjoy in our worship of him and all that we do. That is why the psalmist is joyful to be in Jerusalem, because he is there, knowing who his God is. This is the creator. This is the savior who has redeemed Israel out of Egypt. This is the God who is for us and not against us. I am here to worship such a God. 
That's why the psalmist is so joyful. And really evidence of that joy is how he really now loves God, how he loves his neighbor, right? Because that's impossible as human beings because naturally we just want to love ourselves. We are so concerned about self, not really about others, but through the grace of the gospel and Jesus, what God does, it realigns our heart affections. Rather than living for self, we want to live for God. And one evidence that we live for God is love for our neighbor. And that is exactly of how we see the psalmist behave a little bit, at least we see a little bit, at the end of the psalm in verses 8 to 9, which we're going to go to next. But remember, I'm not going over the place for no reason. Remember, Psalm 122, it's structured as that chiasm, right? Remember the staircase. Verses 1 to 2 match in content, what verses 8 and 9 match, and then it's going to build up until we get to the center of the psalm. And so we've, so we've looked at really the psalmist's joy, the joy to worship God. Now let's see the evidence of that and how he loves not only his God, but also his neighbor. And so look at Psalm 122, verses 8 to 9, as we work our way towards the middle of the psalm. The psalmist writes, For my brothers and companions, for their sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And so where the psalmist is glad just to be in Jerusalem to worship God, we now see two evident fruits stemming from such worship. First, look at verse 8. We see it here that he, he communicates very subtly, but he's communicating, really, his love for neighbor. And if you look at the, the verse very closely, that, th- those people, the brothers and companions, those are the same people that was telling the psalmist, hey boy, let's go, let's go worship the Lord. Let's go to the house of God. And he goes with them, back in verses 1 to 2. And as a result, what does the psalmist say on behalf of his brothers, on behalf of his kinsmen, his neighbor? Peace be within you. Peace be within you, my friends. And we're going to see shortly later in verse 6 why he prays for peace. Yet, let's talk about the word peace really quickly. The word for peace in the Hebrew, it's a very well familiar word. It's the Hebrew word for shalom. So, peace with you, shalom be within you. And that word for shalom here, it has a very wide usage in the Hebrew language. It's a very rich word. It can be utilized as a greeting, shalom, how are you doing? It can even be used as a farewell, shalom, shalom, peace be within you. Hope you have a great day. And yet in the context of Psalm 122, it is primarily focusing on the idea of safety. The idea of being free from danger. And even in some contexts, it has even the idea of salvation. And again, once we get to verse 5, this is just going to pop on your face like, whoa, that's, that's pretty cool. But yet, why is the psalmist praying for such peace, however? And so we see here then that the reason why the psalmist is praying for his brothers and sisters because he is just simply concerned about their physical and spiritual well-being. And that is amazing because what greater way can a person love one another by thinking about them, especially through prayer? And now I know that might just seem like as a humble, kind gesture, but no, don't take for granted the power of prayer because what is prayer? This is talking with God. But yet when we pray to God, there's two things happening. One, we're denying ourselves first and foremost. We're saying, I, God, I can't do it without you. I need you to the point that if we go one day without praying, then we're basically saying, I don't need you, God. I don't need you at all. But when we pray, though, we're saying, I, God, I need you because only you can provide for the well-being, the well-being and the needs of whether I pray for myself or even for the needs of each and every other person. So that's what the psalmist is doing here. Because he is so joyful to worship God and because he has this new heart to live for God, He's just worshiping God. And evidence of that worship is how he has loved his neighbor. How he has loved his neighbor. 
And so it's with that in mind, loved ones, that like the psalmist, do we pray for each other? Do you pray for each other's well-being, spiritual and physical, brothers and sisters? Do you pray for each other's physical and spiritual well-being? And if you think that, like, ah, John, like, is that really necessary? Well, think of the Lord Jesus for a minute. Jesus is a perfect example, and he was very countercultural, not on purpose, but because he was, he was just doing the will of his Father in heaven. If you look at the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, the one thing that will stick out like a sore thumb is that he always prayed. He would purposely wake up early in the morning or go to desolate places and pray to his heavenly Father in heaven. That is crazy. Because think about it. Jesus, he wasn't just a mere man. Yeah, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And the fact that although he is fully man and fully God, and he is going to go his life as a man, depending upon God through prayer, how much more do we need to pray to God? How much more do we need to pray not only for ourselves, to depend upon God, but even for each other so that we can all encourage each other to depend upon God in the same way. And only did Jesus constantly pray on earth, but yet he now, be, he now prays on our behalf. Think about it. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is your great high priest. Why? Because Jesus, as the God-man, is the one mediator between God and man. Sin created this chasm where we can't worship God anymore. But yet with Jesus, if you believe in him as Lord and Savior, he closes the gap. He is the bridge of how you, if you believe in him as Lord and Savior, can have a relationship with the God who made you. Not because you're worthy, in a, worthy, worthy of it in and of yourself, but because you are declared righteous based on your faith in King Jesus. You are forgiven based on what Christ has done for you on the cross. And therefore, he is your great high priest. He intercedes on your behalf and consistently prays for you, not only because he loves us, but because he went through this life as well. And so he understands you as well. And so if that is the example of Jesus' loved ones, I was to do the same. Allow us to not only have a rich prayer life depending upon God and all that we do, but allow us to always pray for each other as well. We talk about good works, right? That we're not saved by good works. We're saved by our faith in Jesus Christ alone. But as Martin Luther would say sometimes, God doesn't need your good works. That's true. But you know who does need your good works? Your neighbor, your people. And so although it can be difficult to love others at times, we can begin doing so by loving our neighbor, by praying our neighbor, even your enemies, right? And so pray for your neighbor, pray for your brothers and sisters, as the psalmist does, because ultimately Christ does the same as well. And so that's how we see how the psalmist is loving his neighbor here. Second, we can't, we can't forget about verse 9, however, how does he love God? Because ultimately how we love God is based on how we love our neighbor. That's what the Apostle John says in his letter of 1 John. How does he love God here? Look at verse 9. When we look at verse 9, it's communicating really his love for God. And look at that repeated word there. There's another phrase here. The house of the Lord our God. We see that phrase repeated where? In verses 1 to 2, right? And so again, they're parallel statements. And so we see here that as the psalmist was praying for his neighbor, now he is praying for the house of God. Now he is praying for Jerusalem. And not only that, but he says, I'm going to seek your good. I will seek your good, Jerusalem. And although it's a little bit ambiguous in our, in our English, if you look at the overall context, and even in the Hebrew, it indicates that really the psalmist, when he says, I will seek your good, Jerusalem, he is praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And we're going to see later why in verses six and verses 5 to 6, why the psalmist is praying for the Jerusalem, and we're going to eventually see why does it even matter? Why should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Yet in the meantime, we at least see here that the psalmist is praying for both the peace of his neighbor and for the city of Jerusalem. And the fact that he does that is that he is mindful of both his neighbor and God because he ultimately loves both his neighbor and God. 
And so keeping this all in mind, loved ones, and seeing how the psalmist is so glad to be in Jerusalem to worship God, and he's praying for his neighbor, praying for God's city. Do you possess such a joy to worship God? Are you so happy above anything else in this world? I know we live in a a society filled with many comfort, many distractions, and it's horrible because it's really a detriment to the church. But, But in light of all that, loved ones, do you possess such a joy for God? And even considering the, the psalmist for a minute, right? Because like John, eh, the psalmist, he's in a unique situation. They went, to the, they went to Jerusalem to worship God. We don't need to go to Jerusalem, right? We're not the temple. But yet when you think about it, are we not the temple of the Holy Spirit? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit because when you believe in Jesus, boom, the Holy Spirit fills you up so that you can now live in Christ-like holiness. So we don't go to a temple, but we gather as individual temples to the church, to worship God, to come together in his name, to sing songs of worship to him, and to praise him, to hear the word preached, to know him more, so that we can love him more. And so what I'm trying to get at is that, do you possess not only a joy in God, but do you even possess a joy coming to church? And I know, like, yeah, church is important, John, but really think about it. I know, and, I, and, I, and this has been, I have to remind myself as well, are we stuck in the motions of just doing things that we need to do it? Or do we do it because not only do we know it's good, but because we want to? I want to be at church. I want to be with God's people. Not only are we showing the world that we are God's family, that we've been united by the blood of Jesus, but that the fact that we're able to worship and hear the word preached and say amen and take the Lord's Supper and pray together is because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That is what the church represents. And to kind of help paint this picture, one of my favorite quotes is from a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is what he says about really the community of the church and why we should seek such joy. He says here that it is easily forgotten that the fellowship of the Christian brethren, that is the church, is a gift, is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. When we gather in Christ's name each and every Sunday, and even when we are able to gather with brothers and sisters throughout the week, that is a grace. That is a gift from God. Because apart from ourselves, what else would all bring us here together? Maybe a, maybe a common um, interest in sports, maybe in hobbies. No, we are so different that, yeah, we might bump, bump into each other on a week-to-week basis, but the thing that we're here each and every single week is because of Jesus. He is the one that brings us together. And because of that, that's a grace. That's a gift. And we can never take that for granted. It could be taken away from us at any moment. We have brothers and sisters around the world right now who have to meet in caves and, 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 and under the dark shadow of hiding because the, the cost of discipleship is high there in those places. That might be true for us pretty soon, right? Just looking at the culture. I don't know. I can't say for sure. I pray that we'll still meet up. But nonetheless, whether we're in good times or bad times, never forget that the fact that we're here right now, this is a grace. This is a gift. As the psalmist was joyful to, to experience the grace of being with God's people in Jerusalem, allow us to be thankful. Allow us to be joyful in God that we have the grace of fellowship with each other here right now as God's people forever. And, and if there is anyone here, just to maybe further expand upon this, if you do find it difficult to be at church for whatever reason, maybe, man, John, like, yeah, I try to love church, but just recently people have sinned against me, so it's hard for me to forgive them and stuff like that. Fundamentally, Ignore that right now. The question that you need to ask yourself right now is that, first, do you find joy in God? Do you love God for who he is? Are you just so thrilled and exhilarated that, man, I know God, and he knows me? And if you're unsure, then ask yourself this question. 
What do you value most in life? What do you worth? What do you give the most worth here in this life? And if it is not God, then you know the answer. You do not find joy in God. You have made an idol in your heart. But yet there's good news. There's room for repentance. Like John, man, this is hard stuff. Yet if you repent, like, Lord, I am sorry. I have sinned against you. You will be forgiven, even of all your sins. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 9, one of the most beautiful passages about the assurance of forgiveness, John writes to the, the church at Ephesus, if you confess your sins, he is faithful. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And the way how that is constructed in the Greek, it's a conditional clause to the point that if you truly confess, like, God, I messed up, forgive me. Help me to find my joy in you. Help me to live for you, not only for the sake of my church family, but for the sake of your name. If you confess, then he is faithful according to his good nature to forgive you and not only to forgive you, but to cleanse you, to help you to become more like King Jesus. Truly then, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And so, loved ones, rest in your justification in Christ Jesus. Rest in the reality that, yeah, we're not perfect. We have sinned against God, but you know who is perfect? Jesus Christ, and he died for us. doesn't mean we take his, granted for, his grace for granted, because that will be cheap grace. Rather, although we will mess up from time to time, we can always return to the fact that I am a child of the living God. I have been adopted into his family, not because of any goodness in my own right, but because I believe in him by faith and faith alone. And so we must repent first if you lack joy of God in your life. And so what do you do from there, right? All right, John, I repent. That's the first thing I need to do. I need to, I need to come clean with God. What do I do next? How do I start growing in my joy in God? Well, in order for you to grow in your joy in God, you need to first grow in your knowledge of God. Because how can you be so happy in someone if you don't really know them? But how, so with that in mind, how do you go in your knowledge of God? Well, historically throughout the church, there's three means. And they're called the three means or the th- three ordinary means of grace. And that just simply means prayer, Bible reading, and the ordinances or, you know, being baptized and taking the Lord's Supper each and every week as we are a fellowship in God's body. That is how you, that is how you know God more every day. Prayer forces you to be like, God, I am not going to live for self. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, I want to live my faith for you because he loved me and gave herself for me. That's what prayer does to depend upon him. And, 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 and keeping that in mind with Bible reading, Bible reading is how we know more about God, who he is, how wicked we are, and how awesome God is through the gospel. And it's through those things combined with every day coming together as a church, taking the Lord's Supper together, remembering what Christ has done for us through the gospel, getting our marching orders through the Bible to not only love him more, but so that we can be faithful and living for him in the world. It is a combination of these these three things throughout your journey in this Christian life. That is how you grow in your knowledge of God. That is how you grow more in knowing God each and every day. And then something interesting happens. Once you grow more in your knowledge of God, you're going to find yourself like, man, I'm loving God more. Man, God is awesome. God is gracious. God is, is so great. I do not want to worship anyone else but God. And the moment you start loving God more, then that's going to be the moment you start to experience true joy in God. No matter if you're in the highest mountain peak in your life or even the darkest valley, you can experience such joy because you love God, because he first of all does, because fundamentally you know God through his word, through prayer, through the church. Again, as the psalmist writes and reiterates in Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26, he says, who, am I, who have I in heaven but you, O God? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they will fail. But God is my strength and of my heart and my portion forever. Such is the essence of true worship, loved ones. 
Such is the essence of true worship when we have joy in God, leading us to love him himself and even our neighbor as well. Only then will such a reality, when we have a true worship of God, will that begin leads to the second hope of why we should pray for the peace of Christ's return. Because perfect worship here and now, we can achieve it, but we're ultimately going to fail. We're not going to perfectly get that, and the world is not going to perfectly get there until Christ returns. That's why we've got to pray for this, right? That we grow in our worship of God now so that we can not only perfectly worship God now and forever, but so that the world one day will come and bow the knee that Christ is Lord Christ is Savior. we got to pray for that, loved ones. But only until we achieve true worship will we be able to achieve the second hope of why we should pray for God's peace, why we should pray for Christ's return. And it's this second hope, loved ones. The hope of unity and diversity. The hope of unity and diversity. So, so where the first hope is the hope of true worship, that we should strive to truly worship God in our lives. We should pray for other people around us to come to a true worship of God. Even our neighbors or unbelievers are like, man, I love you so much. I don't want you to die in your sins. I want you to know God. It's only when we start embracing that reality where the second one falls into short that we see a unity and diversity. And I'll explain what, what I mean by that phrase. But look at Psalm 122, starting in verses 3 to 4. Jerusalem, built as the city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And so after the psalmist, you know, ex- explains his joy to, of, of worship to God at Jerusalem, he now begins to explain a little bit about the city itself. So look what he says first about the city of Jerusalem. He says that the city is built as a city that is bound firmly together. And translations might differ a little bit, but it just, it's trying to capture the idea that the city is bound together. In other words, the psalmist is really describing the, structu- the structural unity of the city, and for those who went to Jerusalem a couple months ago, it, you probably saw Jerusalem. It, it's, it's, it's very old, you know, and there's a lot of different moving pieces and stuff like that. But if you're to go back in time, you know, a couple thousand years ago, and to see the original city of David, the original Jerusalem, it was on this, this one little mountain peak, Mount Zion. It would eventually get expanded on after uh, after through history and stuff like that. But the original city of David, the original Jerusalem, it just looks like this one little city on top of a hill. And yet, when you look at the structural unity of the city with all the buildings, the temple, the palaces, and the walls around it, really, many parts, diverse many buildings, but yet it was all really one city because the walls enclosed it as one. And so we see this diversity in in Jerusalem, but yet it is ultimately one as one city. So why am I emphasizing that? Well, to build upon this idea then of unity and diversity, Jerusalem, many buildings, but united as one city, Look at what the psalmist keeps describing about the city. He says that the city is also where the tribes of the Lord go up. At Jerusalem, you have the tribes of the Lord. They go to that city. And if the tribes of the Lord is a little bit ambiguous, the tribes of the Lord, they're really the 12 tribes of Israel. The descendants of Jacob from the patriarch Isaac and Abraham, the the fathers of Israel, the Jacob's 12 sons, they would eventually become the founders of each of the 12 tribes that eventually make up the one nation of Israel. And what the psalmist is saying is that you have this one city of Jerusalem, many diverse parts, one city, you have the nation of Israel, 12 diverse tribes, but yet go up as one true Jerusalem. Why? Why, however? Well, look at verse 4, loved ones. He says, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, They go there to give thanks to the name of the Lord. 
And so we see here that it is decreed. It is commanded that the 12 tribes of Israel go to Jerusalem in order to give thanks. To give thanks to the name of the Lord when? At least about three times a year. And if I may offer this quote from Deuteronomy 16.16, this is where one place it is commanded for Israel to go to Jerusalem to worship God and give thanks to him. Moses writes, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, which is eventually Jerusalem. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And so we see that Israel is supposed to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year. There will be a couple more holidays that will be added on throughout history that will lead that will give more opportunities for Jerusalem to make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But nonetheless, we see something very interesting here. We have, again, the one city of Jerusalem. Many, many buildings, but one city. We have the nation of Israel going to Israel. Many tribes, one nation. Because there at that city is the one God, three in one. That is the God that they are called to worship. That is the God that they are united over, right? Because the 12 tribes, they're one family, but if you read the Old Testament... Like family, right? They bicker a lot. They fight a lot. And yet the one thing that keeps them together is God himself. God's law, God's love, God's promises to his people. And that is so interesting for us, loved ones, because, yeah, not all of you are Jews. Some of you are Jews, right? But for us, we're Gentiles. We're non-Jews. But yet the implication of the reality of Jerusalem and Israel is the same that we as a church, are we not called to be one? We are diverse members. We are diverse parts in the family of God. But yet, are we not called to be one in Christ? We are one family of God, and we are called to be one in worship of him. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, in light of this reality of the church, which was true for Israel back then, which is also now true for the church today. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through in all. That is, what the, that is what the church is supposed to be. We are to be one family, one united people under the sovereign lordship of King Jesus because by our faith in him, he has brought people from all these different people groups, all these different backgrounds to be one in him. And that is really the beauty of the gospel that eventually at the end of time that we're going to see Every people group from all the nations throughout time and space and history are going to come to the city in Jerusalem, are going to be at the new heavens and the new earth, worshiping the one and only true God as the one people of God called out from the world to live for the one that we were made to worship. That is the implication for the church. And when we are in unity with one another because of our unity in Christ, then we declare to the world that we are the family of God, that we are God's people. And if you, and if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, not only will you be grafted into the family of God, but you will experience the beautiful reality of belonging not only to God's family, but ultimately belonging to God. That is what we are called to be a church. And I know sometimes we tend to bicker a lot. I know sometimes we fight. And even if I mention this as well, the world looks, the world sees us at times. And unfortunately, many in our culture view Christians or the church as perhaps the most condemning, exclusive, divisive, and most intolerant of people. People may say, Pastor, you may say that the church of God is supposed to be one because God has first loved you. But yet when I look at the church, I just see more divisiveness than anything. People fight over silly things. And, and not only that, but even when you look at the history of the church, the church has caused more pain than unity. The thing about the Crusades in the Middle Ages. 
Let's think about the slavery and how people did that in the name of Christ in our own country. And not only that, but people in our culture may assume that, man, if that's what the church is supposed to be like, why is it then that so many non-Christians appear to be more compassionate and even more moral than Christians? And if you think that's a hard pill to swallow, just look at some of the moral failings of some important Christian leaders and, and pastors in the church and even just in the past year. And so people would assume then if Christianity is the one true religion, how can it reconcile with the lousy records of Christians throughout history? If the church is supposed to be one, I haven't seen that. What's your answer? What's your response to that, Pastor? And the solution, loved ones, because that is a serious claim. That is a serious claim, because if we're supposed to be one in Christ, how do we reconcile with this reality? And the solution is not a lesser form of Christianity. It's not deconversion away from Christianity to abandon the faith and do your own thing, because that's false worship, and that leads to brokenness and death. So what is the solution? A deeper form of Christianity. A deeper, more robust form of Christianity. Consider what this person says. The American abolitionist Frederick Douglass, and for some who have read his autobiography, he was an American slave and unfortunately experienced the horrors of antebellum slavery in the South in the 19th century. But yet, he was a Christian. And in light of all that he experienced and saw and fought to live for, consider what he says at the very end of his autobiography. This is powerful. He says, what I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land, our country, right? And with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is by necessity to be the enemy of the other. And then he summarizes with this. I love the pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. And so what we see here is that although Douglas went through all those horrible things, he was able to rightly understand something. And this is what our culture needs today, and this is what we need to embrace today, loved ones. He was able to disentangle the hypocrisy of Christians and that of the Christianity of Christ. Although Christians, some, some, they were sinners saved, saved by grace, but yet they were still saying to still sin, right? Yet he removed the hypocrisy of Christians, and he was able to look at like, no, that's not Christianity. Although they say they're Christians, rather the, the true Christianity is what we see in the Gospels. It's what we see in Jesus Christ. He loved his enemies. He was for truth, right? But yet he loved his enemies. He showed mercy and compassion to the point that he was willing to die for his enemies. That is the gospel. That is Christianity. And that is the Christianity that we must strive to live for, loved ones. That we cannot allow anything to disunite us that really shouldn't cause us to be the vision. Whether it's, it's disagreements over certain theological principles that are tertiary, like timing of the millennium, or different things that we just, we're just we offended at how that, how that person talked to me or whatever, we're going to sin against one another. But don't allow that sin to ruin our witness to the world because the world is watching, loved ones. We are called to live like Christ. Don't allow our sins, don't allow even our past, don't allow anything to ruin your relationship with your church family, but most importantly, God. Because again, the world is watching. Heed what Micah 6, 8 says. This is what the prophet Micah says. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to do what is right, because God is right. And to love kindness, to love, because God is love. And fundamentally, to walk humbly with your God. It is this unity of diversity that we see in Israel, worshiping the one and true God in Jerusalem, that is what we must strive for, loved ones. 
We are many different people, many different parts of the body, but we are all necessary because we're all brought as one family, one body, one organism to live for God. That is another reason why we have to pray for peace, because I know it's hard. We sin against one another, and we live in a crazy world that, that leads us to, to really rip us apart from one another, but yet we've got to pray for peace, pray for the peace of the church, pray for our unity for one another so that the world could see our love for one another and come to faith in King Jesus as well as the one family of God. And it's with that, and it's with that same vein of praying for peace that we see now that the psalmist begins to then really pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He recognizes the unity of diversity in Israel. Now he wants to pray for it. Allow us to do the same loved ones. Look at what he says in Psalm 122, verses 6 to 7. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. And so we see that the psalmist now is, all right, we see this awesome oneness in the nation of Israel. I'm going to pray for Jerusalem now. I'm going to pray for Israel. In one sense, again, to continue in that unity of diversity regarding its worship of the one and true God. Even Jerusalem itself, when you think about it, it means possession of peace. And if I may share a little bit of Hebrew for you, and this is a very popular Hebrew phrase, when it says pray for the peace of Jerusalem, notice, how the, notice the similarity of words. In Hebrew, it's shalom, shalom, Yerushalayim. That's what many Jews pray today when they go to the, to the Wailing Wall. Those who went to Jerusalem, they had an opportunity to pray for Jerusalem. And I know many brothers there were praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And I'm going to get there shortly why we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But nonetheless, Jerusalem itself means possession of peace. And so the psalmist, he's looking at the people of God. It's like, man, we worship the one and true God who is peace. i got to pray for peace. i got to pray that we maintain such peace. Not only is Jerusalem supposed to represent peace, but if I don't pray for it, then we will fall into the danger that we are not for peace, but we would rather be for war, disunity, sin. And not only that, but he's praying for such peace so that they would remain secure. Not only as a city, but as a people. He prays that they would prosper, not only as a city, but as a people. And again, so that Israel would remain one in their thankful worship of God. He's the only one true God. We must continue to thank him, and I need to pray for the unity of my people. Therefore, loved ones, in light of that attitude of the psalmist, we need to fight for the unity in the church. And that begins again with prayer. Jesus' little half-brother, Jude, he writes this in light of a time in the churches of Jerusalem that were being separated by false teaching. He says, in light of all this stuff, loved ones, this is what you must do. Contend for the faith. Fight for the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is how we maintain unity. And that is so important because when we, when we fight over things and never forgive one another, and like, you know, I'm not, I'm, you, know you sin against me, I'm not going to forgive you. Like, oh, you offended me, I want nothing to do with you. What does that show the world? It shows that we are not fighting for the gospel, but that we are separating over things that is fundamentally not the gospel. Because think about it. The one thing that is supposed to be our greatest witness to the world, our greatest apologetic to the world, loved ones, is our love for one another. Is that we love one another. Not that we hate one another. Not that we get so offended by other people that like, I'm not going to forgive you. Yeah, you're my brother and sister in Christ, but I'm not going to deal with you. That's wrong. Instead of having that mentality, and I'm not saying that we should discredit sin, we got to take it seriously. But as God has first forgiven us, we have to forgive others because that is our greatest witness, that we love one another. And it's only when we love one another that we're able to maintain that unity and diversity, unity in the church. Consider what Jesus says in John 13, 34 to 35 in light of this. He says, A new commandment I give to you, my little brothers and sisters, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's Jesus speaking. And we see his perfect example of love when he died on the cross for us. And the beautiful thing about this reality, when John wrote this, and this is one of my favorite stories from church history, when John was an older man, um, an old man, later at the end of his life, he was um, one of his earliest followers. I forget the guy's name. It's either Polycarp or Ignatius of Antioch. They would say that, you know what John used to say when he was an old man? They would bring him on this chair, and you got old man John, you know, just like, you know, yapping and stuff like that, and they'll bring him into the body. And you know what he would always be saying to people? Love one another. Love one another. Because you realize that if we, if we are going to be united as one family in God, if we are going to be effective in, in our mission work to make disciples of all the nations, if we are going to be known as God's people, we have to have love one another. And if you ever picked up a book on church history, the one thing that the church was known for, despite being persecuted and killed in the Colosseums by the Roman emperors, is that they had love for one another. True worship and unity and diversity would never be fully achievable unless we learn to love one another. And again, I know that's only going to be fully realized when Christ returns to make all things new. That's why we've got to pray for it. That's why we've got to pray for Christ's return right now. Pray for his kingdom to come so that we can experience that reality right now. And yet, it's only when we begin to have that true worship of God, truly striving, fighting for the unity of one another, to love one another, to forgive one another, because we're God's family, that it's going to really help us understand this last hope. And it's going to be the third hope of why we should pray for Christ's return, loved ones. And we'll end off with this, the hope of perfect justice. The hope of perfect justice. And so look at Psalm 22, verse 5. This is the peak of this chiasm. He says, Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And so we reach the pinnacle of our psalm, the center, the main point of why the psalm even writes this psalm in the first place. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what causes the psalmist then to pray for Jerusalem? Why is he so joyful to be at Jerusalem? Yes, we talked about he wants to worship God and he loves his neighbor, loves his God. But what is the fundamental reason why he even writes this psalm in the first place? And it's because at Jerusalem, the thrones of the house of David are there. The thrones of the house of David are there set for judgment. And in Old Testament times, that makes sense. Because there in Jerusalem, that's where the Davidic dynasty was set to rule with perfect justice over the nation of Israel. And the Davidic dynasty was, was, was the kingdom of Judah that began with a guy named King David. He, was, he used to be a shepherd boy, but God raised him up to be a mighty man of God. Although he wasn't perfect, it would be through King David that God will use him and his seed, his, his descendants, to reign on the throne of Jerusalem to, to rule over Israel with perfect justice, with perfect peace. At least that was the goal, right? That's why the psalmist is praying for the peace of Jerusalem. He is praying for the peace of Jerusalem because when he does that, he is really praying for peace of the nation. Lord, be with our king. Be with David. Be with his sons so that we can maintain peace as one family so that when the four nations look at us, they see our one worship of God. And they'll see like, man, what makes Israel so different? Why are they worshiping this one God? Why are they one together as one? It's because they worship the one and true God, and God is using this, this King David and his seed to, to establish this perfect justice here on the land. But yet, there's something to that, though. The Davidic dynasty, it, this, it no longer reigns anymore in Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem right now, there's no king there. They have a completely different government system. And so this is what the psalmist is praying for, right? But, John, why should I be excited about that? The psalmist is, right, obviously. That was his king. That was his time. Why should I be excited about that? How does this passage really apply to us today? And the good thing about this passage, the beautiful thing about this passage, the rich truth of this passage, 
is that the, the thrones of David are there. Because think about this. When you, when you keep in mind the big story of the Bible, there was a promise that God made to King David. He told King David, like, David, I'm going to make a promise with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. You are going to be king over my people in Jerusalem, and through your descendants, I'm going to bless him so that one of your descendants ultimately will have a kingdom that will perfectly reign forever. We have a kingdom of peace. will be a king, kingdom where he reigns with perfect justice and equity, judging all the nations together. And now if you look at the Old Testament again, David never did that. For Israel, maybe, but his descendants, some of them were fools and punks. They were wicked. Some of them were good, but fundamentally, they all failed. This promise that God made to David, they failed. And so what was God getting at? And when you think of the big picture of the story, David and his family, the promise that he made to his family lineage was, is fulfilled. It was ultimately fulfilled in one who is the son of David, who was also the son of Abraham, and that is an individual named Jesus of Nazareth. Because when you think about the big story of the Bible, we look at the beginning, and God makes a promise after the fall of Israel, or sorry, after the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of humanity, he says like, yes, you guys are going to die for your sin, but yet there's good news, there's hope. I'm going to provide a seed, a seed from the woman who's going to one day come and destroy evil once and for all. He is going to come and destroy Satan and crush his head once and for all. And when he traced that seed promise throughout the Bible, we see that that seed is passed on then next to Abraham. And through Abraham's seed, this one promise is going to bless all the nations. How so? Got to keep reading the Bible. We go to Isaac. We go to Jacob. We go to his son Judah. And God promises to Judah, from your descendants, Judah, there's going to be kings that come from you. And ultimately, who is the greatest king that came from Judah? David and his descendants. And we see the seed promise ultimately being fulfilled in these people to what then makes a climax in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here is the beginning of the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All the promises of David and his lineage, all the promise that God gave to King David, the reason why Israel was so excited that, man, David, he's going to bring peace and justice, all is fine fulfillment of King Jesus because Jesus is the ideal Davidic ruler. Jesus is the one who was going to crush the head of Satan. He did it on the cross, and after that, he is going to punish evil and for all. He's going to establish perfect righteousness. He's going to establish perfect justice here in the Lamb. That is what King Jesus does because he is not only David's descendant, but he is the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, the one who is going to come to bring perfect justice, the one who's going to judge evil once and for all, the one who's going to reign in perfect peace forever. That is what Jesus does. And just to provide one prophecy, there's, there's, there's many that talks about Jesus in this way, but consider what Isaiah writes about Jesus 700 years before Jesus even comes to the scene. He says in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, he says, behold my servant. It's talking about Jesus. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. So he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Where David and his descendants were called by God to rule Israel with perfect justice and equity, it would be one of David's own descendants, King Jesus, who will not only be Israel's greatest and true king, but he will be the king of all the nations of all the world. Why? Because he has come to crush the head of Satan. He has done so on the cross, and he is going to return one day in his second coming to judge evil once and for all. All this pain and suffering that we experience in the day-to-day 
on a day-to-day basis with him. He's going to bring all those things away, push them aside, and come and establish his perfect kingdom and reign in peace forevermore. So Satan and his demons and sin are judged forever, and for those who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord, will have everlasting peace with him. That's what Christ has come to come. He is the ideal Davidic ruler, and he will come and sit on his throne at the end of time to reign with perfect justice, peace forevermore. And that's the goodness of the gospel. Because the gospel reality is that we don't deserve such peace. We don't deserve such good news. Rather, because of our sin against God, because we've sinned against the king, we deserve nothing but damnation and hell for sins. Not only did that happen in the garden, but we experience brokenness on a day-to-day basis. That, that, that's nothing that we deserve. Because we've sinned against God, we experience brokenness, we deserve nothing but damnation and hell. We have the goodness of the gospel is that God, keeping his promises to, to Israel, keeping his promises to King David that I'm going to send my son, he is going to be the son of David, the son of Abraham, the promise of the Old Testament, come to make all things new. He is going to defeat evil once for all. And he is ultimately going to do so by dying on the cross so that if you believe in him, if you believe in him as Lord and Savior, confess your sins and believe in him, the Bible says you will be saved. And that's the goodness of the gospel. And once you embrace such a gospel reality, now you're able to pursue and recover the life that you were meant to live, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of love, and that is living for the one who is peace, goodness, and love. And that is King Jesus. That's the goodness of the gospel. And just to end off with this, loved ones, in light of this, this God-fulfilling prophecy, or in light of God keeping his promises to Israel and even to us, we've got to live in light of that reality now. Christ is going to return one day, and he's going to make all things new. Do we live our lives as if that is coming? Do we even want that day to come? Do we pray for his kingdom to come so that he will bring perfect peace forevermore? Are we living in light of that reality that we preach the gospel of peace so that when Christ returns, our family, our loved ones who don't know Christ will be condemned to hell forevermore? Because when Christ returns, that's what's going to happen. And I don't know about you, I don't want that to happen to those who I know who don't know Jesus. I want them to know Christ so that they can experience true life in him evermore. And so loved ones, live in light of this reality that Christ is not only the fulfillment of King David, but he's going to come as the king of the world to make all things new. Live your lives in light of that reality. Not only does that give us assurance that Christ is going to return to make all things new, but it gives us the assurance now, the strength that you need, the hope, and, the, and everything that you need to live for God right now to live in Christ-like holiness, to make disciples of all the nations. Live in such a reality, loved ones. And it's with that in mind that we ought to keep praying for Christ's return, for he will come and bring peace. We don't want no one else to rule us because God is good. Jesus, he is the one who brings perfect justice. He is the one who's going to bring perfect mercy. He's going to punish sin once and for all because when he reigns, we're going to be united in praise in him. When he comes to make all things new, there's going to be perfect shalom in Jerusalem. Perfect shalom in the world. We're going to have perfect shalom, perfect peace with the God who made us. And for the sake of God's glory and for the good of our neighbor, we are going to be able to live for him, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and understanding. And so, loved ones, keep this truth in mind that the fulfillment of the scriptures is Jesus Christ himself. Not only did he die on the cross, but he rose again. And now we are called to live for him until he returns to make all things new. And out of that reality, pray for his return so that he will bring peace Live with peace now in him so that you can keep preaching the gospel of peace. Only until then will he come to make all things new. That's the goodness of the gospel, and that is why the psalmist is so joyful. Allow your joy to be full in light of such reality, loved ones. And so with all of that in mind, we're going to pray, and then we're going to get ready for the Lord's Supper in the final song, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper, and we'll finish our time here together. But join me in prayer one more time, loved ones, as we prepare for taking the Lord's Supper in our final worship song.